Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. To find out more about Dream Talk Radio, visit my website at anhill.org. That's A-N-N-E-H-I-L-L dot org. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. You are listening to KOWS LP Occidental. I'm Ann Hill. I'm your host for Dream Talk Radio this morning. And with me on the phone, I have an author of a great book that's just come out, Queers in History. And it is the comprehensive encyclopedia of historical gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgenders. And the author, Keith Stern, has graciously called up from... um, from his from his secluded writing enclave in another state. So, Keith, welcome to Dream Talk Radio. Good morning, Anne. I love your show, so I'm very glad to be on. All right. Well, I was so pleased to uh, to get a copy of your book and to start taking a look at it. It it's just it really is. I mean, it is something that you could use as a doorstop. It's immense. It's like 600 pages. Right. And can maybe you can tell people, uh, some listeners, what it, how this what the story is behind it. How you came to and how many entries are there? There's like. 900 people, and it stretches from to the third millennium BC to today. How did you get started on such an immense project? Well, you're right. It is a huge book, and that's uh, one reason uh, why my uh, publisher calls it an encyclopedia. There are 900 separate amazing true stories in the book, 900 articles, and so it covers thousands of people and thousands of facts, uncounted number of facts in that book. And uh, so it, it is reasonable to call it an encyclopedia or a doorstop, but uh, <laughs> Sorry I think of it more as a, a handbook to the wilderness of history and kind of an Audubon guide to finding the gay and lesbian people that are hidden in that wilderness. And it started very small. Uh, I, my curiosity was piqued when I read a magazine article about Leonardo da Vinci, and it just casually mentioned that uh, it was thought that he was gay. And uh, I... It, I realized that a few weeks earlier I had read the same thing about Michelangelo, and I was thinking, well, how do they know? I mean, that, that's all they said. Right. Where, where are the details? How do you know this? How can you prove it? What does it mean? So I figured if I went into the library and spent maybe a week, I might dig up 40 or 50 historically prominent people who were gay or lesbian. And uh, at the end of a week, I had 100. Wow. And so now, after a lot of work, years of work, and uh, assistance from four different editors, over a period of time, we have this book with over 900 people, and it, it's just the story of each of their interesting lives and uh, the part of their life that you don't get in the standard biography. It is remarkable in that, it, and I found myself starting, you know, I, I'm sure you get this from everybody, like, really? Are you kidding me? I had no idea. You go page after page, and and what really strikes me about the book is that, you know, at first glance, is like, oh, okay, this is a book about the sort of identity of being gay. But actually, what these, the, every walk of life, 
you know, every in people, it's, it was a fascinating to me how people did and didn't cope with their, se- or, or I would say maybe some people had a little bit more, uh, were allowed a little bit more leeway by their culture to express themselves right. and, and who they were sexually. Other people, you know, get these really interesting stories of kind of in the closet, halfway out, you know, and, and what, just what the, the cultural milieu was that, that, each of these people came up with and their remarkable achievements at the same time. Well, it, it certainly is a diverse group of people. And as you say, I found representatives of, of every walk of life from poets to businessmen, to scientists, to uh, criminal. Yes. <laughs> and so there's something in there for everybody. <laughs> and I think uh, that was one of the, one of the biggest surprises for me. The book is full of surprises for everyone. Yeah. But uh, as you say, you, you, you turn the page and you say, no, can't be. And that really is the way I started on each of the articles was thinking, well, I'm going to do a little research and I'll prove that these rumors about this person are false. But more often than not, I just found more and more fascinating, detailed information about not only how it was true that this particular famous, prominent person was gay or lesbian, but how important it was in their life. Even in years past where you'd think that it was pretty much kept a secret. Yeah. Um, that, first of all, that wasn't always true, and uh, if anything, it's, uh, it's more of a modern phenomenon that people kept this aspect of their life secret and treated it so seriously that it was a criminal offense. That, that only really started happening in the past 150 years. And uh, so, yep, the book is full of surprises, and uh, in terms of diversity, one of my goals, original goals with the book, was for it to provide role models for, for young people, yeah. which is an important thing. A lot of Young uh, gay or lesbian people think, well, I can't be that. I can't be a politician. I can't be a scientist. I can't be uh, even a movie star because I'm different. Right. And what this book proves is that whatever you, whatever kind of life you want to pursue, whatever career, it's open to you because uh, there are other gay and lesbian people who have uh, made uh, blazed that trail for you. Yeah, you know, it's really true. We have this idea of what of the culture that we're living in that by and large doesn't really play out when we start investigating history. I mean, mm-hmm. that to me is such an interesting phenomenon, the idea that, oh, we're becoming a little bit more liberal, a little bit more accepting, you know, the, the whole the, the story that was out on the, the Prop 8, the um, Equality in Marriage Act. Well, you know, you were, you're down in L.A. And the whole story that, well, okay, the demographic of that was much a much older set of people who were staunchly against gay marriage and the you know the whole younger sure. set of people are more in favor of it but in in fact this is actually we we are living in a pretty puritan culture compared to say socrates culture or many others right even even if you go back to the 18th century and the 17th century and even the, right through the middle of the 19th century uh people just weren't all that much concerned about it uh they they knew people were uh, had sex, and they knew people had friendships, and uh, it, it just wasn't that uh, thought of to, uh, as a, that negatively if two men, for instance, were extremely close. They were called chums or mm-hmm. particular friends. There were all kinds of words that were used to describe these extremely close and intimate relationships between uh, men and women, and women right. uh, would be made perhaps called a wealthy marriage because there, it was so common for women to bond at uh, particular Right. colleges. And so uh, it was only with the, in, in Victorian times, and particularly as the uh, British Empire grew, 
that uh, some politicians found that they could use this as kind of a tool against the native cultures where it was very common for uh, uh, homosexuality to be tolerated or even, you know, uh, admired. Yes. So it, that, that uh, British Victorian uh, time is when the repression really uh, became serious, and that was only, you know, 150 years ago. And we're just coming out of that now in the past 30 years or so, I'd say. So it takes time. It does take time. And to me, I, I had a friend um, who just, uh, we, we've been talking about culture, and he was talking about the fragility of culture and how, uh, you know, we may think that we're going in one direction and then, you know, say, just just make the electricity go off for a couple months and see what happens to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, that's actually true. Uh, so I, I mean, while I would love to think that we are actually heading in a more progressive way in general in this slow sort of glacial time sense, I, I actually kind of wonder sometimes. Well, you're right. History is not necessarily a record of progress. Uh, and so you have, but, but you do have to kind of accept the way things are. And, uh, the first, uh, responsibility of history is to tell the truth and to be accurate. That's right. And that's, that is where there is some kind of a, a dissonance or a separation. People often uh, think they know history, but uh, when you go and really do the research and find out what really happened, it's somewhat a different story. It's really true. And I think that anybody who picks up your book is going to think, oh, okay, I kind of know, yeah, mostly gays are in the entertainment industry or they're writers or they're poets or something, but that's actually not the case at all. There's statesmen and diplomats and all sorts of people, philosophers. Uh, maybe we could actually. That would be interesting to talk about. I know you. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, people in your book that are that are were philosophers or real spiritual um, kind of visionaries in their time, and I, I'd kind of like to get some of those stories in. For instance, one that really surprised me was Wittgenstein. Uh, That's right. Almost impenetrable as a writer. Brilliant, but you just—it's one. I mean, I have an, actually. I—I'll—I'll I'll take the Cliff's notes on that guy. You know, he had some really interesting ideas. But uh, anyway, it was not for for um, general the lay person really. No, in fact, even when he went for his degree, I believe at Cambridge, uh, and he submitted his thesis, um, the two professors who were supposed to evaluate it, one of them at least, uh, considered it to be a work of genius, but he wasn't sure. He wasn't sure he understood it at all, uh, but uh, he felt that if he did understand it, it was a work of genius, and in any case, you'd give him a Ph.D. <laughs> and at the end of the examination, of course, Wittgenstein patted them on the back and said, don't worry, I know you're not going to understand it. Oh, God. So he, he, he was difficult to understand. But this whole uh, question of uh, the role of homosexuals in philosophy and spiritual, spirituality and the arts, for that matter, Yeah. I think there is a pattern that develops. I mean, when I started writing the book, I thought I didn't expect to find any particular meaningful pattern. I was just, you know, digging up facts that uh, were never uh, assembled in one place before. You can find all these tidbits of information about people, but it's scattered in so many books and magazines and newspaper articles and now all across the Internet and sifting through what's true and what's not true and uh, I didn't really, I wasn't really even hoping that in the end I'd have a book that means something. But I did find that there, there are patterns and that the, mm. the sexuality of these people did make a difference in their lives. It made a difference in, you know, the, how, what, the things that they were interested in and the approach that they took to their work. And a philosopher 
I mean, it's extremely helpful for a philosopher to, to be able to see both sides of a question. Uh-huh. And inherently, that, uh, that uh, comes from realizing that your sexuality may have a dual nature. You may be a woman who's attracted to women. Right. Uh, and uh, you may be a man attracted to men or bisexual, too. And I think that uh, Kinsey showed that there was a bell curve in that regard. There aren't any people who are necessarily 100% one way or the other. Every heterosexual is attracted a little bit to someone of the same sex, and every uh, homosexual is going to be attracted to some extent to a member of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. So it's this dual nature that you find in people who uh, would be identified as gay that gives them the ability to see kind of both sides of the question, and it makes them uh, interesting in terms of scientists and philosophers and, uh, yeah. and visual artists, too. Well, that makes sense because so much of original thinking is the ability to sort of get out of the box of how everyone else is thinking. And sure, for... and of course, a, a gay person at a very young age finds themselves out yeah. of that box. Seriously. Because there is, the, you know, they, they, they know how they feel and they know what their, their reality is. And then they're surrounded basically by a world that tells them either this doesn't exist or it's not legitimate or there's something wrong with you. And so they learn at a very early age that things are not exactly the way they seem. That's right. And there's there, there's the also the sort of the insider-outsider, being on the inside of a family or a social scene, but also feeling somewhat of an outsider, which, mm-hmm. yeah, that's actually kind of a, a privileged position for a creative person, I think. Right, because as an outsider, um, you're not really able to follow the crowd, Right. And so oftentimes you find yourself in a position where you are almost a, a become a leader by default. In other words, you're seeing things a little bit differently and you have a different point of view and uh, you've got to express your point of view. And you may find that uh, you're telling people things that they wouldn't otherwise think about. And so uh, many gay and lesbian people find themselves in, in leadership positions, particularly in the arts. Mm-hmm. That, that's so interesting how the leadership uh, dovetails with this ability to see both sides or see, see things in two or more different ways. Mm-hmm. I, um, can you point to any examples of that in terms of politics and statesmanship or stateswomanship or whatever we're calling it now? I can't remember. Well, well sure. I mean, uh, uh, there are many, many examples, but perhaps the one... Uh, I should mention while we're on this on this topic of duality, though, let me go back yeah. to the Native American culture, right. where uh, these people are often called two spirits, and uh, these are people who may be men in a female role or or women in a male role, and they were treasured by the the uh, their tribes uh, as 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 spiritual leaders. Yes, and they were uh, revered. In fact, when uh, when uh, in the uh, late 19th century, when uh, the political officials in Washington, D.C. wanted to have uh, a particular tribe send a representative to D.C., they sent, uh, instead of sending their best man, they sent Weewa, who was a, a two-spirit, a, a man dressed as a woman. And he just wowed them in D.C. They, he was, became a major celebrity there. And uh, it, they never questioned as to whether he was actually a man or a woman. They assumed he was a woman. But uh, that was who the tribe sent to, to represent them. But back in terms of politicians, of course, perhaps the most famous example in my book would be Abraham Lincoln. Oh, uh, really? Yes. It, and I was as surprised as anybody because there have been stories about Lincoln, really, ever since he was president. Yeah. That uh, kind of intimated that perhaps he uh, had 
some very close relationships with men and perhaps was a little gay or something like that. But uh, I expected when I would really look into it that I would just find that this was just gossip and uh, stories that people like to tell. But no, as, as I looked into it, not only did I find that uh, Honest Abe was a gay man, but he was comfortable with his sexuality and it had a big impact on his life and the way he conducted the Civil War. Well, that's interesting. So, so say more. That's really fascinating. Yes. Well, uh, you know, you, the story of Abe, I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Um, you know, uh, the first time that Abe appears in the records is as the author of a poem. When he was 20 years old, he wrote a poem that was published in Indiana. This is 1829. It's remarkably perhaps the earliest gay-themed poem in U.S. literature. It's about two young men who decide to get married and try to have a baby. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it caused quite a stir in the neighborhood, and people remembered it uh, long after uh, the poet went on to bigger things. And uh, the reason we know about this poem is because it appeared in the earliest biography of the president in the first edition. But uh, mysteriously, it disappeared from later editions. And uh, then when, uh, when Abe was a young man, of course, he uh, went off to become a lawyer in Springfield, Illinois, 28 years old, uh, totally broke, moved to Springfield, and his first stop was at the general store, where he was hoping to buy a bed. Yeah. Standing behind the counter was a 22-year-old young man, the shopkeeper, Joshua Fry Speed. And uh, when Josh totaled up the cost of a bed, it came to a whopping $17. Well, Abe just didn't have the money. And uh, so he asked Josh if he might be able to buy the bed on credit, but Josh had a better idea. He took Lincoln by the hand, led him up the steps to his living quarters above the store, where there was a, a small room and a bed in the corner. And Josh suggested to Lincoln, why don't you just sleep here with me? And the two men did live together and slept together for four years. And they were friends for, for life. When, mm. when Lincoln, as president, would introduce his friend Josh to other people, he would jokingly say, I know him very well. I slept with him for four years. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, people would laugh nervously uh, a little bit. But uh, it was not considered the kind of thing that you would hide, that kind of affection between two men. Interesting. Now, Lincoln was marked particularly as president by his discretion, his uh, secrecy. Anyway. He, he could really keep a secret. And... Uh, Certainly one of the secrets he kept was about his private life. But even people who knew him well would never claim to know exactly what was going on in his mind. Yeah. And so notably, as commander-in-chief during the Civil War, he developed new methods of espionage, codes, strategic planning, and uh, while maintaining a real hands-on attitude, uh, approach to the battlefield operations, he wanted to know everything that was going on around him. And so these are kind of trademarks of someone who's, who wants to really maintain control and privacy and so you might say that being a gay man was great preparation for Abraham Lincoln to become president and commander in chief. And know, all the details are there in my book. This well, actually, I should mention to people: we, you are listening to cows. You're listening to Dream Talk Radio. I'm Ann Hill, your host, and I'm talking on the phone with Keith Stern, who is the author of an amazing book, "Queers in History." comprehensive encyclopedia of historical gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgenders. And it's really, you know, this book has the power to completely rewrite your your idea, your whole framework of, of what 
our history is, and indeed, we're really what our, our modern culture is, too. And uh, this book is on sale everywhere fine books are sold. Is that not right? And you can yes, find more... Yes, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Amazon uh, and local. And, and A lot of can, independent bookstores, too. If you want to know more about the book, you can go to queersinhistory.com. All one word. All one word. I, mean, I should the, say about Lincoln, yeah. too, you know, and you may know more about this than I do, but I think he had a little reputation as a mystic as well. I know there's at least one book that was written by someone else in my encyclopedia, uh, and it's called Abraham Lincoln Mystic, and it's, uh, it's still in print. I think you can get that on Amazon as well, wow. but it was written by uh, actually a man who's better known as a, uh, uh, a musician and composer, mm-hmm. Jesse Shepard. So he wrote uh, under, a, uh, under a pseudonym of uh, Francis Grierson, he wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln's mystical life. The Practical Mystic, it's called. The Practical Mystic. Well, mm-hmm. I so mean, Lincoln... Maybe some of your listeners know a little bit more about Abe's, uh, that part of Abe's story. That could be. I've, I actually, I don't know that part of Abe's story, and that's that's pretty fascinating. I mean, there's been a lot of, obviously, Barack Obama has been sort of invoking Abe Lincoln all along the way to his, mm-hmm. on his path to the White House, and actually even after with some of his speeches and so forth. And I, I mean, so there's been a lot of attention turned on Abe Lincoln. I've read several articles about different books and so on and so forth about him, and they are all a little bit mystified. And I'm, it's, it's, it's kind of mystifying to me now that that they haven't actually come a, and said out, you know, just flat out, well, he was gay actually, because I mean, there's this whole idea. Well, he was, he was terminally depressed, and his wife was a little bit nuts, and who knows the real story? It's like the the kind of the he said, she said sort of thing, but. Well, None. sure. You, you you know when you when you talk about Lincoln and 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 Joshua sleeping together for four years, the first thing that historians will tell you is, well, of course they slept together. Lots of men slept together in those days. It was common. They had to share beds because there was a shortage of beds. Mm. And then you go, oh well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But then when you think about it a little more, you realize that well, there was no shortage of beds in the Joshua Fry household. The man was a bed salesman. Right. He was practically the sit and sleep of Springfield, <laughs> Illinois, you know? And so, uh, and the fact is that uh, Lincoln slept with men in the White House, too, the, the commander of his uh, bodyguards. And uh, there was no shortage of beds in the White House. And so, uh, people don't want to believe it, especially about as revered a figure as Abraham Lincoln. They, they would rather not think about his personal life. And, and so, uh, it's, and it's difficult to claim. Uh, his history back for him when people want to deny it and will go to extreme lengths to deny it. And yes. they come up with good stories like, oh, yeah, there was a shortage of beds. Right. But then when you look more deeply into it, you realize that that doesn't really explain it. Yeah, if he didn't want to sleep with Joshua, he could have found a way not to. Oh, yeah, they were, they were, <laughs> they were very happy to sleep together for four years. <laughs> uh, well, and in terms of Lincoln's depression, too, of course, yeah. where do we know that started? That started... On January 1st, 1841, as far as the historical record, historians refer to that as Lincoln's fatal first. And uh, what what they don't say is that that's the day that he learned that Josh was going to leave him. No kidding. That's right. So w- when people can't accept that simple fact, they make up stories. And so there's a story, you know, almost immediately when they discovered this, the records of this depression that he went into in 1841, they made up some story about how he had reject, uh, dumped a girl. He had been planning to marry a girl, and he told her that day that he wasn't going to be able to marry her. 
and he dumped her, of course. And uh, that's the story, except nobody who knew him then can remember any girl in the picture at that point. And it, and, it, and it doesn't make any sense at all that someone would go into a depression after after dumping someone that they were yeah, engaged to. That isn't right. normally the way it works. Yeah. And so, yeah, they, they come up with all these, uh, these cover stories that sound pretty good when you first listen to them. Oh, yeah, of course. If you don't want to believe that Abraham Lincoln was gay, you can believe that there was a shortage of beds, and that's why he slept with men. And you can believe that he went into a depression because he rejected a girl that he was planning to marry. But when you look at the facts, they're, they're different. That is really, you know, talk about, um, I mean, you, you talked about your whole uh, impetus to write the book was in some sense to provide role models for kids mm-hmm. growing up, which is so very important. And yet here we have, the, you know, this incredible power of denial in history, which is like... It's like a tidal wave that you, that, that you, that you work against. It's, and, ju- it's rather like a Goliath sort of a, yep. a sort of a thing. And so, yeah, so it's a good book for people who want to know the truth. I mean, yeah. uh, one surprise I had was how long and difficult the editing process was because, um, you know, I thought I'd done a pretty good job, and I turned in my manuscript when it was due to the publisher, and I figured somebody would go through and correct my spelling and, yeah. you know, change the syntax and grammar a little bit, and then we'd be done. But no, we went, I went through we went through a process of three separate editors who did all the fact-checking and Wow. Made sure, sure to pin down all the documentation, and so it was a very nine-month process, about like having a baby, I guess. <laughs> and uh, that's what it took. Just to, once the book was done, just to make sure it was all true and accurate. That's that's a remarkable achievement as well. Three different mm-hmm. editors. Boy, yeah. I know. That, that, I'd already worked with one editor before I submitted the manuscript, yeah. and then once I submitted it, my publisher assigned a series of three more editors mm-hmm. who went through the entire book, each of them, with me. So I guess then it is true that Duke Ellington wasn't gay. That was actually a surprise in the opposite direction for me because uh, I yeah. I had heard that he was in the um, Billy. I can't remember his last name. Strayhorn. Yeah, right. Sure. True. Well, yeah. that, that's. I mean, oftentimes you will find that people do kind of uh, through association. You think well, all their friends were gay, or their closest friend was gay. But it, certainly in the case of uh, Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington, Strayhorn was the composer and pianist who worked who was probably closer to Duke Ellington than anyone else, uh, uh, was very gay, uh, very all, all basically openly gay. Mm-hmm. And so people would see the two men together in this very close friendship that they had and would make the assumption that Duke Ellington must have been a little bit that way. But uh, all indications are that they never had anything like a sexual relationship and that Duke Ellington was thoroughly heterosexual. So, yeah, you could, you can, there are some surprises in that direction, too. Right, because I read that they were sharing beds all, you know, back and forth across the country. So yeah, well, I was shocked. You can put shocked, that rumor I to rest. <laughs> okay. Well, and and interestingly, there are a couple rumors that I noticed that you didn't take on, and I'm wondering whether there hmm. were some uh, still living people of some considerable level of fame, say that that did you receive any um, missives saying, uh, please don't write about this or Please don't write about that. Well, uh, there aren't too many of those people missing. I mean, the main reason why, I mean, I do, uh, the funny thing is people ask me, well, does anybody object to being in your book? And, uh, of course, the funny thing is I I do live in Los Angeles, and I know a lot of celebrities, and the biggest problem I have is with people who are mad at me because I didn't put them into the book. Uh. (laughs) But uh, uh, there uh, are certainly 
there's certainly at least one very famous movie star who's yeah. not in the book because I don't want to get that letter from him. He's right. got uh, uh, enough money to sue me and my publisher and the rest of the industry yeah. uh, without having to prove anything on his end. But he can, uh, he can certainly make life miserable for me and has a reputation for doing so uh, in other cases. And so yes. he's not in my book. Yeah. But other people are. Okay. Well, fair enough. <laughs> now, you also mentioned, oh, I should say again, that we're talking to Keith Stern, author of Queers in History here on Dream Talk Radio. And one of the things that is my real interest in this uh, radio program I've been doing just for about two years now is the interplay between dreams and culture. And I think this is kind of a nice, uh, this book is a nice subject to talk about because when you were talking about uh, the seeing both sides of, of something, having a, a dual perspective on things, I think that is in large part what dreams allow us to have. Dreams give mm -hmm. us that kind of, okay, I can see things from a waking life perspective. And then, wow, there's this whole other way to approach the, I, the, the whole the issue. This is setting it in this whole other context if I look at dream material. Sure. Do you find that dreams have been useful to you in your writing? Well, I sometimes tell people that I do my best work in my dreams. <laughs> and I, in some ways, I mean it. I mean, dreams offer an alternative way of approaching a problem or thinking about a problem. And when I get stumped as a writer, or even in my uh, other occupations, I've been a computer programmer, and I found that it was extremely helpful. I could spend hours during the day working on a computer program problem mm -hmm. and just uh, not get a solution, not figure out how to write the code in, in the best way. Yeah. And I found that... I, when I got myself in that kind of uh, programmer's block, if I, when I went to bed, I would think about the problem as I went to sleep, and invariably, and over and over again, when I woke up in the morning, I just went to the computer, entered the code, and it was flawless. Wow. So I was able, my mind was able to step back and take another look at that problem, sort out the spaghetti bowl aspect of, of, of the problem, and then come up with a solution that remained in my conscious uh, mind after I woke up. As a writer, uh, I, although, uh, 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 although my book is nonfiction, it's really a collection of stories. Yeah. They're true stories. But figuring out the best way to tell the story sometimes can be tricky. Uh, I mean, you're, you're trying to, to uh, sum up a person's life in a thousand words or 1,500 words, and you don't know always the, the best formula, where to start, where to go how to end it, what's important, what's not. And, uh, and very often, if I was working on a particular article and just, just wasn't working right, I would just think about all the facts that I had about that person. And as I go to sleep, I just think about those things, and I can be fairly confident that when I wake up in the morning, I will have a different take on it, and in most cases, a superior solution mm -hmm. to the way to tell that story. So that sounds uh, that sounds like pretty practical, actually almost a literal, really a literal answer coming out of sleep. I I kind of count on it actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and and that's why I know I don't get too frustrated by writer's block or anything else uh, like that because I know that if worst comes to worst, I will fix it in my sleep. Hmm. I also write screenplays, and I find it very helpful in in when I'm uh, writing dialogue. And figuring out, also figuring out the plot. 
Oh, interesting. Uh, where, how does the plot go? Where, what's the next step? Sometimes I, sometimes I don't know what's going to happen next uh, in the story. And if I just think of where the story has gone so far, I can go to sleep, and in my dreams, I take the story that one more step, and I can, can wake up and then write, you know, continue writing the story. Right. And uh, I, I, I know other writers feel the same way uh, in terms of, uh, uh, particularly in terms of writing dialogue, where you, 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 you have to try to really be the person who's speaking. Right. Um, and th- this goes back to the duality of, of sexuality, too, where a, a male writer has to write dialogue for females and females have to write dialogue for men. You have to be able to identify with that opposite sex. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, perhaps gay and lesbian people are in a somewhat better position to do that sometimes. And uh, uh, a, a lot of my friends who are screenwriters, or at least a few, have mentioned that uh, that they too kind of uh, have, that there's a spiritual aspect to this mm-hmm. craft of writing dialogue where mm-hmm. that person's personality almost takes over and they speak the words and you don't know exactly what they're saying. In fact, uh, I work for the actress Lynn Redgrave, who's mm-hmm. also on Broadway right now, uh, off-Broadway, uh, with her one-woman show called Nightingale. And uh, uh, she's told me that uh, sometimes she writes the dialogue without even knowing what it means. And mm-hmm. then when she reads it, she, she understands it because it's really this other person talk, kind of talking through her. Uh, so, there's a, of course, there's a spiritual aspect to creative writing. And even when you're writing fi- uh, nonfiction, yeah. there's a, a creative element. Well, and it strikes me as really important to underline the fact that in your process, you work your, like a dog to get to that point. You have to lay out all, you have to follow all the avenues till you get to the dead end, mm-hmm. right, in every d- different way. And then, you know, after that, that sort of uh, effort, after putting all the effort in, then the dreams are like, okay, here's how you can rework that. Exactly. The dreams sort out all the facts and ideas yeah. that you've had. And I, I find that at least my dreams sort them all out into a, a narrative that uh, that then makes sense. Yes. And it's very efficient as well. Right. But they don't do your work for you. You have to work get it, to get to that point. And then once they give you the thing, you can't just sit back and say, okay, my dreams will take care of finishing the book for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it all has to be in your consciousness somewhere. Yeah. So you load up your consciousness or perhaps even overload your consciousness to the point where it's not working anymore. And then you just have to relax and let your subconscious or your dream state take over at that point. And then, uh, you, know, with the, you know, with the confidence that when you wake up in the morning, it's, it's all going to be taken care of. And at least that's the way I've, yeah. I've experienced it myself for many years. Well, I think you are very fortunate to have stumbled upon that. And it's always fascinating to me how many people do stumble upon that. Like, oh, right, my dream state, the dream state, however you conceive of it, is here to support me, particularly when we're doing work that is a, sort of a, a good fit. You know, we're doing the work that we're meant to be. Then dreams are all right lined up with whatever we're doing. Right. And yeah, yeah, you have to, yeah, they have to fit in. And you have to you have to have that confidence and faith in in the dreams because otherwise I think it, you'll just forget them when you as soon as you wake up you'll lose everything that you yeah. gained in that dream state. Yes. So yeah, you have to believe in it a little bit. 
Yeah, it's well, you know, I, I just wrote an article a couple of weeks ago for the Huffington Post on uh, dreams that have changed Hollywood. And I wish I'd known some of your stories because I, you know, I was just reading a couple magazines and, and came across the one of James Cameron, who dreamed up the Terminator figure right. and sat down to, to write the screenplay for it. And um, what was the other one? Um, the uh, Ocean's Eleven producer, uh, big Jerry Weintraub had a dream about uh, the marquee in uh, he was a young guy he was like in his mid 20s and he had this dream of this marquee in this dark night sky that said Jerry Weintraub presents Elvis live at Madison Square Garden uh-huh. so he gets on the phone to the colonel and does not and just persists for months and months and months wow. until the colonel will take his call and then he just, you know, he's a total, um, he's a salesman. He just pitches this thing and says he can raise a million dollars in two weeks. And so, and then, you know, uh-huh. there there goes Elvis out on the stage again. Amazing. Well, you do have to have the dream before you can make it come true. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, maybe we have an idea for my next book or someone else's next book right <laughs> here, which is, you know, an encyclopedia of all the dreams that people had and how they made them come true. Well, there there are partial books to that effect mm-hmm. it would be really you know you could you could do that in a lot of different ways you could do that i, I think it's far more common than, than people realize yes. it's not the kind of thing that you really have a chance to talk about too much That's and right. it's not you know uh maybe some people don't even like to admit it yeah but because uh, it, it could sound a little wacky if you say i you know do my best writing when i'm asleep but uh, i think it's pr- probably far more common just as i found that uh, it was far more common for people to be gay and lesbian than you might think. It's probably far more common for dreamers to be in positions of power and leadership and leaders in the creative arts as well. Well, it's also interesting, the opposite opposite is also true too, I think. People who are pretty uh, solid in their their heterosexual moorings, you know, nothing Mm -hmm. can, and they're pretty solid in their identity, also tend to be the ones that are way more literal and do not and sort of disapprove of homosexuality and disapprove of artists and anybody that has a sort of a both and kind of an orientation. So, I you right. know, humans are just born all across the spectrum. Sure, I think uh, in in terms of those people who uh, are very uh, what you might say straight laced or uh, you know maybe disapproving of people who are different or mm-hmm. a lot of times too what you find is those. People are suppressing their own that 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 part of their own personality, right. and they're projecting a facade of uh, literally straightness. Yeah. Uh, and so, if you scratch the surface on them a little bit more, you might you might find that they're not quite as straight as they seem. Well, J. Edgar Hoover being a case in point, he's he's a very excellent example because he was definitely a homosexual man who lived happily yeah. with his partner for many years. They're buried together, and there was it was. You, you, you might call it an open secret, except it was hardly even a secret in, yeah. in the FBI that uh, these two men were lovers. And, uh, and of course, uh, Hoover was terrified by the idea that someone might expose his secret. Mm. And that, that might explain one reason why he was so good at gathering secrets of other people to use against them, because he had dirt on everybody in Washington and everybody in Hollywood. And he maintained uh, uh, files on everybody so that... Uh, Certainly, if anyone were ever to think of exposing him during his lifetime, he would have had the dirt on them to prevent it from happening. Yeah. So, yeah, there's some there's truth to that in terms of J. Edgar Hoover projecting this totally masculine, G-man kind of uh, image. But right. uh, 
but uh, then uh, when he's uh, when he's in private, he's wearing a dress. Yeah, at parties. <laughs> at parties, at a party, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dwight Cohn's party at the Plaza Hotel. Yep. God. Well, and, and again, it sounds so ridiculous in a way to think of J. Edgar Hoover in a dress that you think it, it can't be true. And then it must be just a rumor or gossip. Yeah. And then, then you go back and you find it was, no, it was, you source it back to Time magazine. They had a very good source on it. Uh, they held on to the new, you know, that particular item until after, after he died, but I don't think it was even a week or two after his death that Time magazine printed that story. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah. Well, it just goes to show that, I mean, truthfully, the capacity to see things in two different ways is, is sort of value-neutral. And what we make of it, whether we're um, driven by our ambitions or, or um, you know, uh, ideas of, of cultural betterment or whether we're, we're pursued by our fears and terrified of various things, I mean, that is really the, it seems to me, those are the triggers of, for how we actually manifest that, that capability in our lives. I mean, dreams being another case in point. But let's talk about some. One of the interesting people that you had in your book that I had no idea, but he's been a cultural icon for as long as I've been around is is Ram Das. Right, Ram Das. Ram Das. Who knew? I thought he'd been married, and then he was this sort of yogi guy. Or, well, yes. I mean, well, especially yes. I mean, he he does uh, he does have this image of a of a highly developed spiritual person. He's written one of the most influential books. Remember, be here now oh, is yes. one of the biggest selling and most influential books in spirit in the spirituality realm of the past thirty years. And he is re- revered as a guru, and and uh, uh, and he does it, to some extent. He has dealt a little bit with the conflict between this image that he has and the fact of his homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And uh, he tells a, a funny story about how once he was uh, actually in San Francisco in the nineteen seventies or something, and he was going to go to see a gay porn film. And he was actually standing in line outside the theater, I guess in San Francisco in those days, it was you know, a very popular kind of event. Yeah. And someone came up to him and recognized him and started talking to him about <coughs> spiritual matters. And he realized that you know, he, he, thought, he thought maybe he ought to get out of the line and go do something else and pretend he was just walking down the street or something. And he realized that he, he had to be honest about who uh-huh. he was and, and wh- how he lived his life. And he had to accept that that was part of his life. And uh, and acknowledge that uh, he was standing in line for a gay porn film, mm-hmm. but uh, that doesn't detract anything at all from the the. Uh, and he needs to realize, you know, realize himself that that does detract at all from the work uh, that he's done. Right. Well, but, yeah. It, even someone like him is a bit conflicted about it. Yeah, and and that's a valuable story to tell: the conflict, how one wrestles with a conflict. Mm-hmm. Particularly in the realm of spirituality, which you know, be here now. Wouldn't that be <laughs> directly and you know, anathema to to hiding what you're actually doing in, in the present moment? <laughs> well, sure. And he must have realized that uh, uh, early on, and he, you know, perhaps I mean, and certainly being gay motivated him. He, I mean, he may have been writing that book as much for himself as for anyone else, of course. Yeah. And uh, just taking the book to heart and applying it in your own life. A lot of times. Uh, teachers don't always do such a great job of that. Yeah. They, they, they know how to tell other people, but then they have a little difficulty applying it in their own life. Mm-hmm. But uh, once they do, then they're happier. And he's a very, from what I can tell, he's a very happy man. He seems very, uh, he seems at peace with himself, which exactly in the end, I think that's, that's sort of what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about the, you mentioned um, this a book that you're writing now. Can you tell us a little bit oh, yeah. of a sneak preview of what you're working on? Well, of course, it's ironic because uh, it's also a work of nonfiction, but it's probably much closer to the usual topics, I think, that you cover on your show in that it is more of a book of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I don't think of myself as a philosopher, but I do think that almost everybody has their own built-in philosophy that they've developed over their lives. And I think we're all individuals, and we all have our own way of looking at things, and I think there's a value in, uh, in everybody's philosophy. Yeah. And, if, uh, and I think that uh, we all have something to, sh- to share with people in that regard. And as a writer, I feel like I probably ought to write it down and give it to people to read. And so I'm actually combining it with a memoir. I've worked, uh, you know, obviously in a number of fields, the computer business, the music business, the film business, right. quite a bit. And uh, so I have a lot of stories. And so I'm combining uh, a memoir with a book of philosophy. And I'm calling it, uh, with emphasis on the philosophy, really. Yeah. My, my, the, the stories of my life are just meant to be like seasoning on the, the main topic, <laughs> which is uh, about uh, the nature of reality. What else? Mm. Yeah. This is the question of this is the question that philosophy tries to deal with right from the beginning, right from Socrates and Plato. Uh, Socrates being heterosexual and Plato being gay, <laughs> but together they you know, laid the basis for uh, Western philosophy. Yes, and they were grappling with the nature of reality and arguing about it. And uh, and so you know they took the approach that uh, you would take a position about reality: is it real or is it an illusion? And then you would try to prove one point of view or the other. Well, I think naturally the, the view that reality is real is probably going to win that argument, yeah. just inherently by definition. But I've taken a different approach in my book. And I have taken that question, is reality real or is it an illusion? In a sense, I've taken that question slightly different. But instead of trying to prove it one, one way or the other, what I've done is I've assumed, I've made an assumption about which is true, and I've extrapolated what happens logically, step-by-step, step, if you make that assumption. Hmm. And the question is, does the world exist outside of our minds, reality, or hmm. is it purely a, a product of our thought process? I think it's a question everybody's probably asked themselves at one time or another. Yeah. And I think most people answer the question, well, of course there's a world out there and objects really exist and they don't depend on us being here, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, it does make noise. Right. And, uh, and I think that assumption uh, and that belief has brought us to the world that we live in today uh, with all of its achievements and all of its confusions. But I think if you uh, make the opposite assumption and assume, just, just assume that everything we see around us exists only in our thoughts and only in our minds, once you make that assumption, some very interesting things start to happen in terms of the way you understand how the world works and what the meaning of life is, what the meaning of death is. All the eternal questions that are unanswered by the other assumption mm-hmm. that things are real, suddenly you can logically get wonderful, concise explanations for all those eternal questions that people mm-hmm. are trying to answer. And so that's what my book is. It's the answer to all those what is the meaning of life kind of questions. Interesting. And, I'm, and, uh, and it's a quite a hopeful book, too, because uh, once you do make that assumption, suddenly um, the world becomes a much 
more meaningful place, I think. I won't know until I finish the book, I suppose. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but, but I mean for it to be a very hopeful book yeah. in that if you make the assumption that it's all a product of our thinking process, uh, that you wind up with a world that's really more beautiful and meaningful and um, more spiritual and uh, a little bit less frightening, perhaps. Mm. And so I call the book at this point, well, I'm pretty sure the title is going to be Virtual Immortality. Hmm. Because one of the key things that you realize is that uh, if, you, uh, if the world does exist in our minds, then in a sense we're guaranteed a, a form of immortality, a virtual form of immortality. We don't have to worry so much about death because the meaning of our life is in the thoughts that we create. Ah, so that assumes that the thoughts s survive. That's right. Yeah, demise that, of that our physical And the, you would have to assume that in order, you know, that's one of the logical conclusions oh, that you must come to once you make that assumption that the world exists only in our minds and does not have a, uh, an existence outside of our minds. Oh. So logically, you'd eventually get there. Mm -hmm. hmm. You're listening to... So give me another three years or so and I'll have that book done. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. It sounds like this is the, the time when uh, your dreams must be weighing in on it and all that sort of thing. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I, woke, I woke up the other day. I'd written an entire chapter practically uh, of very important stuff. Uh, and it, it's all very rational. Yeah. Uh, it's about the way that science works. You know, people, uh, people assume that uh, 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 science is, is purely uh, uh, facts. And there, are no, and there are no assumptions. But really, all of science is based on, on an assumption. Mm -hmm. And I realized that in, in my dreams. And as soon as I woke up, I had the whole thing, and I wrote it all down. And then I just had to figure out exactly where in the book it belonged. Uh -huh. <laughs> I knew it belonged in the book somewhere, and I found the place for it. And there it is. It's the beginnings of a new chapter. Fabulous. Well, you know, Descartes, the, the, the father of our sort of Cartesian-based uh, view right. of reality, Sure. Had had these three dreams he wrote down in great detail, and they sort of turned him on the whole road of, of where he was going and his his thought process. And then he proceeded, of course, in his professional life to discount and devalue the the role of dreams and all that sort of thing. But it was actually the dreams that are clearly written down in his journals that that turned him into the icon and the uh, you know influential person he was. Isn't that amazing? So he had the dreams, and yes. they pointed him on the path, and Absolutely. then he rejected that idea he, later on. He he, he uh he, well he yeah he basically denied that the dreams uh, had anything to do with it. That it was basically his rational mind had come up with. That's funny. Yeah. Very interesting. It is fascinating. You are listening to Dream Talk Radio. We're talking with Keith Stern, the author of Queers in History, which is a great book, and I encourage everybody to go out, rush out en masse as the bookstores open in about 15 minutes and go buy it. It makes a great gift. Isn't that right? Uh, it's and a terrific gift book. <laughs> and, uh, and, it's, and it's not just of interest to gay and lesbian people. No. It's, it's, about, it's 900 fascinating stories about 900 different people Whatever subject you're interested in, you're going to find a lot of people that you're interested in in this book. And it's, it's kind of the story of their lives with an emphasis on their sexuality, and yes. we're all interested in that. Celebrities, sure you bet. scandals, secrets, sex. It's good, good stuff for everybody, and uh, it's certainly a great gift. Uh, it is. If you want to open somebody's eyes to something that they may not have seen before. That's right. Well, you know, and I, I picked it up and I thought, okay, well, this 
this book, you know, not knowing anything about it, it seems like, okay, this is really going to support a sort of an identity politics of, okay, we need to, you know, like, okay, we need a Hispanic here, we need a woman here, and we need a, you know, queer here, and we need, so everybody, all the little categories are covered, and I thought, well, you know, there is a sort of a um, law of diminishing returns if you go too far down the identity politics path, but then, so I'm reading it with that kind of, I wonder if this is going to pan out in this book, and what happened in my in my reading was I realized actually this is this kind of goes this is the opposite of an identity politics book because sexuality is just a part of what everybody is doing and these people you know you have stories about people all over the world in all walks of life and it's just it becomes a non-issue that's what I hope I hope I hope that I mean (laughs) ever since I started writing this book I was hoping that eventually someday it wouldn't mean a thing yeah, exactly. And so, I don't know how far away we are. I've been thinking that day would come, but uh, we're yeah. not there yet. But certainly, mm-hmm. yeah, you're absolutely right. Eventually, my book will just the people will look at it and say, "Well, who cares?" You know? right, right. But right now, we're still in a in a in an age where it where people do have the wrong idea about these things. Yes, we have. You know, my book is a little bit of a corrective to that. Oh, and, and, I, and again, yeah. like I said, I, I mean, when I started out, I didn't intend for the book to mean anything particularly. Right. It was just going to be a collection of facts. But as you saw in reading it, when you get enough facts together in a coherent kind of fashion, it starts to tell a real story. And, yes. uh, and <laughs> to my surprise, I think my book does tell that story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you've, you've had a kind of an interesting career trajectory. You were a computer programmer. You worked yeah. in the music industry. Yeah. It, how, how do you, I mean... My experience of having a, a non-traditional career paths is that everything tends to add up and make sense in the long run. But sure. how was that experience for you saying, okay, now I'm going to switch from this industry to that industry? How did well, you find you? How did you thread that needle, so to speak? Well, yeah, I mean, it is very interesting because it was kind of circumstances beyond my control in that. I mean, I did have a background very young. I was interested in computers. And I learned to work with them, and I do have kind of a, a, a logical, I'm good at algebra, so that made me a good computer programmer in the days where algebra mattered. Right. Now it's a different <laughs> world. But, uh, uh, so I was able to make a living as a computer programmer, and I mean, as a, as a youngster, I was interested in poetry, and I wrote a lot of poetry, and I found that writing computer programs was much the same skill set in terms of being having to be very uh, concise yes. and symbolic. And so to me, writing computer programs was like writing poetry. But I was also uh, always interested in music. Uh, I played musical instruments, and I was in some, some rather successful bands. And then I uh, found myself in the music business, like a lot of frustrated musicians. And <laughs> I found myself selling records, to, you know, in, in various forms, uh, working for Warner Brothers Records, and getting interested in marketing and communication. Mm. And you and and certainly in those days, there was no connection between computers and marketing. Yeah. And then uh, about 1995 or so, something happened called the Internet. And suddenly computers and marketing were the same world. Right. If you had skills uh, in terms of public relations and publicity and advertising and marketing, and you also knew how to make a computer do what you wanted it to do, you could be very uh, successful creating websites. And then living in Hollywood, I knew a lot of actors and musicians and directors just on a social basis. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, they all had something I could do for them. Hey. I could make them a website. And so I started with Spinal Tap. Oh, my God, my heroes. SpinalTap.com. 
which was a, a fun website to do. Uh, they uh, pitched in and wrote about half the material, and uh, we had a lot of fun little features making fun of the Internet in a way. Yeah. And this was 1996. And then uh, in 1997, uh, I uh, met through a friend, uh, the actor Sir Ian McKellen. Yeah who at that time was a very well-known stage actor in England, but not very well-known here. And he was just embarking on a new career as a film actor. And uh, when I told him about websites and all that, he thought it might be a good idea for us to do a website for him. And he asked me how long it would take, and I said, uh, maybe three weeks. And uh, so 13 years later, (laughs) we're still working on it. And meanwhile, he's been in, uh, who knows, seven or eight of the biggest blockbuster movies <laughs> of the past 10 years. That's right. And I'd say he's fairly well established as a, a film star today. Yeah, he's Gandalf career's in Lord of the Rings. Well. He plays That's right. uh, Magneto in the X-Men movies. He That's was in the right. Da Vinci Code, played Sir Lee Teabing. That's right. That's right. And so, uh, yep. And uh, now he'll be doing uh, The Hobbit oh. next year. They're making two films. Uh, to kind of the prequels to the Lord right, of the Rings. the prequels. And, uh, and he's just going to go back on stage in London uh, with uh, Roger Reese as uh, uh, and they're going to do Waiting for Godot. Oh, fabulous. Uh, at the Theatre Royal Haymarket beginning in January. He also played that wonderful role in Gods and Monsters. Yes. That was an amazing performance. Yes. I can't remember. Well, that was, that was at the time when we met. He was huh. just about to start filming Gods and Monsters. Uh-huh. And so I had the privilege of doing the official website for, for oh, that great. film, a little yeah. $3 million film. And I did three websites for that film. I did the official site for the film, and I did Sir Ian's website at mckellen.com, mm-hmm. and I did the website for Lynn Redgrave. I mentioned her before. Right. That I, I, I work for her, and I do her website at redgrave.com. So I, I did three websites, and we got three Oscar nominations, <laughs> one for Sir Ian, one for Lynn, and one for the movie. So there you go. There you Is go. Is there any connection? I don't know. <laughs> you decide. <laughs> <laughs> we have been talking with Keith Stern on Dream Talk Radio this morning. Keith is the author, most recently, of Queers in History, and no doubt more fascinating books to come. Um, I'd love to talk with you more in the future about your uh, the w- book you're working on now, Virtual Immortality. Oh, believe me, you'll be hearing from me. Oh, very good. Excellent. You can find out more about Keith and everything that he does at keithstern.net. And you can uh, read more about the book if you are still on the fence about buying it. You can go to queersinhistory.com and get off that fence <laughs> and find exactly. out more about the book. Uh, it's been such a pleasure well, if, if talking to you. nothing else, you'll, you, I think I've got one page there which has about 100 little tidbit facts. And so the website will teach you that much at least about the subject. Very good. Excellent. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you kind so of, much kind of for... like Jeopardy. <laughs> like Jeopardy. You know, there is some great... This is a great book for uh, trivia game material. Exactly. I mean, I thought I had some pretty good obscure trivia questions to ask people, but now I've got, I've got the key. This is like the Da Vinci Code. This is like, you know, the... Um, yeah, the noetic, whatever the hell it was, that 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 is the code that that breaks all of the keys and tells you all of the answers to all of the trivia questions. Right. Well, I I have to tell you, I mean, last year, uh, uh, Sir Ian and I went on a bus tour with a, some of his friends. We went from uh, Washington D.C. to Charleston, South Carolina, on a bus, 
And as we were rolling along the highway, instead of singing 99 Bottles of Beer, Ian got my book out and started, he would read just a section, a paragraph from the book, and, he'd, and then people had to guess who he was talking about. So we made a game of the book uh, as we were on the bus. That's hilarious. Great mm-hmm. to talk so, with you, Keith. Nice talking to you, too. Thanks very much, Anne. Yes, and best of luck in what you're doing now. And you, too. Thanks very All much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there you have it. That was Keith Stern, very entertaining and enjoyable author of Queers in History. Really a fabulous book. Um, I didn't mention the two people that I still have questions about that um, I thought should be in here, but perhaps, perhaps in a later edition when they're not quite so famous. That ends this week's Dream Talk radio show podcast. Thanks for listening, and remember to tune in every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. at www.kows.fm. This is Ann Hill, and I'll see you again next week.